and be like, well, if there's a topic that's been more hotly debated or discussed in the medical service corps in the last 20 years, it's this. So thoughts. Sounds good to me. Uh, that worked for, Nailed that it. Worked for you guys. All right. Oh, and then a vacation spot. Is that what we're doing? Yeah. Okay. That, that we've been to. Not like the ideal decide. I have, I know I had, I had troubles with that. too. Uh, Sorry. I'm just going to say both of them. I can't choose. It's not fair. That I think you're going to waffle. Is that, is that what our listeners want to hear? Waffling. (laughs) The views and opinions of authors expressed herein do not necessarily state or reflect those of the United States government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the C41A podcast. I'm Greg Taylor, and joining me on the podcast today are... I'm Christopher, and my favorite vacation spot is the Lake District in England and Disney. That's, oh, yeah. that's too vague. Which Disney are we talking about here? Disneyland, Disneyland Paris, Disney World, Disney Tokyo? Well, I have been to Disney World and Disney Paris, but it was definitely Disney World. Okay. And I'm Minoj, and my favorite vacation spot is Vienna, when we went to visit there when we were stationed in England. However, I will also take any baseball stadium. I'm happy with that, too. And I'm going to join the these other two guys, and I'm going to also pick a spot in Europe, and I'm going to say Rome. And that was uh, mainly because that was the first European vacation after having kids that Anna and I went off on our own uh, for a whole vacation. And it was, it was pretty awesome. Fond memories that one. Ours are pretty similar actually, because that's where me and Jess traveled for the first time when we started dating. Oh, and look at you now. We became official gr- actually official, uh, not seeing anybody else. Yeah. And now we have a five month old. <laughs> Yeah, did you did you decide to go study like over the Alpen Sea? You know, like <laughs> actually, we had just finished a uh, a octet concert, classical music concert, and then we were at a champagne bar, and we decided to this is this is the one, this is the one I want to try and date for a while. <laughs> Your face, other guys from high school. <laughs> There I was listening to a symphony in Vienna and sipping champagne with my future bride. Uh-huh. All right. So we're not here to talk about uh, Minoja's former dating life. Uh, we're here to talk, among other things, about be a the quick book. episode. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> we're here to talk about the book Range by David Epstein. Why generalists triumph in a specialized world. So plenty of experts argue that anyone who wants to develop a skill, play an instrument, or lead their field should start early, focus intensely, and rack up as many hours of deliberate practice as possible. 
If you dabble or delay, you'll never catch up to the people who got a head start. But a closer look at research of the world's top performers, from professional athletes to Nobel laureates, shows that early specialization is the exception, not the rule. In most fields, especially those that are complex and unpredictable, generalists, not specialists, are primed to excel. Generalists often find their path late, and they juggle many interests rather than focusing on one. They're also more creative, more agile, and able to make connections in their more specialized peer that their more specialized peers can't see. Well, I mean, that's the jacket intro to the book, but I would say that, you know, the topic as a whole just really resonates with so many conversations through the last couple decades in the medical service corps. Although the book itself didn't uh, directly align with the way that we think about generalists and specialists within the core, but some of the skills uh, that that generalists and specialists bring to their positions uh, definitely fit within the book. Chris, uh, what did you think uh, on your read? Yeah, Greg, thanks for that. And I'm I'm really glad that you brought up how the book doesn't necessarily align with the conversation that we have, or at least that is so uh, deeply ingrained in the MSC culture, right? The generalist or the specialist. <clears throat> so I think the book, at least the in title, would appeal to a lot of people. Uh, but you're but you're right. It, it's not necessarily. I don't know, at least from my perspective, like some of the stuff that he talks about early on with the, like the picking a musical instrument, I was sort of thinking that in terms of like translating that to like, what would that look like in say like IT? And so even in that instance, like you would have range maybe in a very, like in a specialized field of IT. So I would have range, I would look at it, you know, either programming or cybersecurity or networking or but then you specialize in one of those somewhere later on. But yet, like you're saying, where it doesn't apply to what we how we normally have the conversation in, in, in the core, because you're still in IT, right? It's not as portal. But but then there was some stuff where they were saying that like there's a range of experience that you have in life, like just sort of life experience, right? The you know, when they were talking about like the 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 head start. Uh, I forget exactly what it, the cult of the head start. Sorry, you know where we think like, oh, you have to start early and and young, and then, you know, and that kind of looks like like how we trans. Sometimes maybe we translate that into our careers too. You know, start start early in your career. Don't jump too often, right? I mean, I I had a, my story. My background is is very much like that. Like I didn't become an MSC until I was thirty two, so I'm much older than most of my peers. So, but I, you know, I had a range of experiences before becoming an MSC that I, I feel like I'm able to apply and that do in many ways make me a better administrator, even though they don't necessarily apply to healthcare. So, but overall, I think it's a great, I think it was a really good book. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, how, how about you, Manoj? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed the book too. It was, I did really enjoy all the studies and examples that he provided throughout the book. Uh, I love Somebody could just tell me something all day, but having those examples to build upon and see it from the view and the lens from other people and other jobs is uh, was enlightening. I, I kind of resonated with me because I, I think I'm kind of that person where I just was like, 
I want to try everything. I don't want to miss out on anything. And it wasn't like, like just sports. I want to try all the sports or just instruments. I want to try all the instruments, even though I did do those things. I tried to play like ultimate frisbee, hockey, baseball, golf. I tried to do all this stuff. And then even instruments, I was doing the viola, the violin, the cello, the euphonium, the trombone, the trumpet, everything else to percussion. But like, I also randomly went, you know, drove a bus for three years. It's like, yeah, that's, that's some, some people might say like, oh, it's kind of a, like a waste of time. You could have been uh, specializing in something or studying something a little bit more. But I was like, no, for some reason, I think I want to go do, I want to go drive a bus for a while. <laughs> and then, you know, I did my degrees in one thing. I did my master's degree in something. And now I'm not even using those degrees so much in the job that I'm in now. So uh, it was like really resonating with me. Everything this guy was saying, I was like, yeah, this is, this is me. And I really wanted that. I don't know if I ever got taught that or anyone told me I should be doing that, but it was the rebel in me because if I think back at the Indian culture, it's like all Indian parents want their children to be doctors or lawyers or something high, high profession, high paying, or you're good for life. And I was like, no, I really don't want to do that. So I want to go against the grain. And thank God I have parents that were willing to you know, do that with me. It was like, okay, yeah, if they want to, if he wants to go learn an instrument, go for it. If you want to go play sports, go for it. They didn't really stick, drive into me like, no, go home, study, do this, become a doctor. So I've seen some of my uh, peers that are same nationality as me go through that and not to say they're not successful they are very very successful but i think some of them lack some range like this book talks about and they probably can't see bigger picture of different problems that they uh, encounter from time to time so uh i really enjoyed that aspect and it kind of uh, settled me down if i had any uh, reservations about doing what i did in life this definitely negated it all. And I'm, I'm glad I took the path in life that I took. So you were the Roger Federer in the book. I wish I had the Wimbledon titles to go along with that, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So one, one question I, I am curious, cause I was really, your name honestly uh, kept popping into my head while I was reading this book, just because I think one of the things when you think about specialization or hyper specialization uh people with musical careers come to mind right you know they start playing piano at four and seating sitting first seat at you know the philharmonic you know by 18 or they're a failure right so did you see did you see that that myth of the head start you know amongst your peers while you're you're learning an instrument especially as you got a little bit older uh, I would say, yeah, I, I definitely knew a good number of people who started playing an instrument when they were like two, three, four, you know, and they, and then uh, when I went to competitions for the state of Georgia, they'd be there always either winning, getting first chair, violinist, violist, and don't get me wrong, very good people, very skilled, but like I started when I was seven. So compared to them, I'm definitely late to the, to the game, but I also was doing other things that, at the time, I did not think they were the same. Like, there was no correlation whatsoever. I mean, I was doing a lot of math problems. I was doing a lot of... Uh, my dad gave me GMAT questions, GMAT math questions when I was younger. So I was doing a lot of that. I was playing a lot of t-ball. I was uh, probably doing a lot of other stuff when I was five, six, or seven. But when I picked up the viola, I wasn't doing anything remotely close to music or uh, anything like that. So when I picked it up, I thought this was going to be 
pretty difficult, especially when I started doing orchestras and competitions. Like I'm so far behind of the people who have been playing for years and years, but then I just, it's something I enjoyed. And I know now there are scientific studies out there with the correlation between math and reading music and playing music. Uh, so not knowing it back then, but knowing it now, that definitely had some connections where I could see math problems and see patterns the way they are laid out on a piece of paper, but then see how patterns reflect in music. And I immediately picked up octaves and and different key tones that I was like, hey, if that works that way, and you know, one plus four is five over here, then one plus four equals five over here in the music. It doesn't make sense right now, but like that's how it jived. And I was, and as soon as I made those connections, it made playing uh, harder pieces a little easier. And then that helped me excel until now, because I'm still playing this to this day. So, yeah. Uh, so not to say those other people who started when they were three or four are not, not good at math or anything like that, but I definitely see uh, their hyper-specialization as maybe a little bit of a detriment because if they don't enjoy what they're doing now and they spent all those years doing it, it's it's tough for them because now they're kind of stuck in that in that zone in that area of uh their their life and it might discourage them from from changing because they feel like they've devoted so much time you know it's like the poker thing you're you're pot committed you're all in now you have to you have to keep going with it it's too late i mean i your story that you just related i think proves proves the point of the book at least somewhat right is your experiences outside of a field when translated into the rules of that field helped you to grasp it faster than maybe some of your peers did who needed much more time with repetition and memorization in order to recognize the patterns that you picked up on so quickly. It, it was also tough when trying to teach somebody else that when they're like, how are you getting that quick? Well, it's like this, but I was using like mathematical terms a little bit or like math patterns and equations and getting to get there they weren't as comfortable with that because they weren't as strong in math or you know read more when they were younger instead of doing math problems which is like the opposite of me so so chris a uh, question for you i there's a portion of the book where they're talking about uh wicked problems and kind problems kind problems being uh but things that are better for specialists where there's a certain environment, specific uh, rigid rules, it's unchanging and wicked problems being things uh, in an uncertain environment, ill-defined uh, with few rules or rapidly changing. Do you, did you recognize those patterns like at work as you're reading ab about those descriptions? Um, honestly, I, I kind of had a hard time like seeing that in, in the in the work environment i kind of had a difficult time like porting or at least uh, maybe not porting um i had a difficult time translating this one to to work at, at least at the sort of like the daily level or like the more repeatable things and it it felt like more like when i was reading it i was thinking more just about my the my career overall from end to end rather than say the specifics of any um, particular items, especially the, and I'll be honest, I don't necessarily remember the kind in the wicked learning environments and the examples that were given uh, on that one. I remember a little bit of it, but not, not a whole lot. 
Wait, you want me to define it real quick? I have it here. It says, in wicked domains where the rules are unclear or incomplete, narrow experience doesn't improve outcomes. Yeah, and and Greg had, Greg had read, read them. Um, and, and I mean, <laughs> unclear rules, right? I think... I think we we deal a lot with unclear rules for a lot of factors, especially one particular three-letter agency that we all deal with on a regular basis. I'm not going to name names. I'm not going. I'm just not going to do that. I don't. You know, I'm not going to do that. Just, just use for, the acronym. For, <laughs> use the acronym. It's fine. They won't know. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I saw, I'll, I'll tell you what I saw, and I know I was, I was trying to lead you so that we could, so that I could contribute my thought. <laughs> to your thoughts sorry. as opposed to it just being my own thought no it's fine it's <laughs> sorry fine. we don't listeners we don't rehearse that this. we obviously don't rehearse this before we record <laughs> all right so what i've noticed through my career and uh is that the times when my success in my job is is really just tied to me knowing what i'm supposed to do and doing it being a specialist in those tasks is a key to success. Like you really need a, a, a really rich, deep depth of knowledge. But in roles like I'm in now as a flight commander, right? My technical abilities in the flight that I'm in are matter very little to the to the overall success of the flight. And really where it's those generalist skills of really bringing in, you know, a little bit of knowledge about resources, a little bit of knowledge about logistics and combining that with IT and, and all that kind of swirls around in the soup that is my head. And you where I'm able to give sound advice to those technicians who are specialists and, and technical experts in the field to help them to be effective. We we've heard, I think, from the core office and and from others over the years, right, that we need both generalists and specialists. And and I would say that in my personal experience, just relating it to to that thought from the book, is that depending on the role that you're in, that's very true. Uh, I, I think maybe as an SGA you need to be even more of a generalist because you're that much further removed from the actual tactical level work to where your ability to make connections is, is the definition of success. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like really, aren't you just talking about the difference between being a strategic or a tactical leader, right? At the tactical level, we're going to need to be a specialist. We're going to need to, at, at least in that analogy is kind of where I, I felt where you were going. And then like for an SGA, yeah, they need to be a, a generalist in that they need to know maybe a little bit about everything. Um, yeah, I guess. But as a flight commander, I think, uh, I, I don't think you'd really be described as working at the strategic level from an organizational standpoint, but I think you still need some of those generalist skill sets yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you kind of maybe have one foot in the door on each on each side. I think the book talks about that when it, I think the examples were frogs and birds. Like in an environment, you can have both. Like it doesn't have to be one or the other, but the frogs are like down below it, you know, 
seeing the flowers and seeing the ground level stuff. And then the birds are just surveying the land across the board and looking what's on the horizon. Um, I thought that was a pretty simple, but you know, on point example. Yeah. The, uh, the stories in this one were, were definitely much more upbeat than the heart led leader one. Um, just to go back to a previous book that we reviewed, you know, these anecdotes didn't leave me feeling sad at the end. When they started talking about music, I was like, yes, interested. And then in Nintendo, I was like, yes, interested. (laughs) Yeah, definitely a very good storyteller. That's for sure. Manoj, both you and Chris already talked about it during this episode about how you had a wide variety of experiences and pursuits before you joined the Air Force. And with each one of those pursuits, you kind of had to learn how to learn in that particular field. So... Do you think that learning how to learn in the Air Force has allowed you to be a better generalist uh, than otherwise, or than other observations you've made of of other people? I would have to say yes, because I have always been a learner from day one, I think. I'm constantly learning, even if it's something that I've done for, you know, 28 years, like playing the viola, I'm still learning uh, there's always still something new that comes up or something that I haven't done, at least if never done, never done at all or haven't done in a long time. And so I always make sure my mind is in learning mode because, I mean, even you, you know, both know with our jobs, there's changes happening every which way. So if we're not in learning mode and we're stuck in the one way of thinking, this is how it's always done, this is how us MSCs is always done, this is how he's always done it as an RMO flight commander or a readiness flight commander you can't have that way of thinking or you're, you're just going to fall behind, I think. So um, having those skills of trying new things ever since I pretty much was in high school allows me to keep learning new things that I haven't done before. And somehow or another, it will, whether I realize it or not, it will translate to the thing I'm doing now. Uh, I would like to take a more deliberate thought process of like, what am I doing now that I, it's something that I took from my, you know, whatever bus driving days. Is there something that I did then that could help me with a problem that I'm working now? And I don't think it's, doesn't have to be that deliberate and that easy, but like, I do want to give it some actual thought one day. If there's something I've done in my past, uh, like he talks about the uh, in incentive, is that what the website was where people post their problems and then, some random attorney over here in you know Massachusetts will be like, oh, I've seen something like that with my cement mixer. Like, what? How did you just solve like the oil crisis with the cement mixer example from an attorney? So or something like that. And so I try, I want to see if there's anything that I've missed that I could be like, oh, you know what? I've dealt with something somewhere over there with this. Maybe I could use it here in my job now. I have no idea if that answered your question or not. <laughs> It did. Yeah. There's no, there's no wrong answer. That's fair. Uh, yeah. I thought so that was a great Chris, response. Chris, you, yeah. I was going to say, you look like you want to jump in. Yeah, Sorry. no, I just, that's okay. <laughs> I thought that was a great response and I a hundred percent agree with uh, pretty much everything Manoj was saying. I think the having that range of experience has absolutely made it easier for me at least definitely early on in my career it made it a lot easier to jump in um and sort of adapt to the new way of 
you know, the, the organizational norms, uh, but then also, you know, bring in those things that you had experienced from other places. And I still, I still will be able to do this. I'll still be able to draw on experiences that I've had in uh, previous uh, jobs or, you know, encounters or, you know, whatever the case may be. Right. I mean, we've, we were recently working on upgrading a UPS, the power supply in the server room. And some of my experience in a previous um, job allowed me to understand something that was happening and be able to question it uh, and then validate what, you know, the technician was coming in and, and telling us and be able to say, actually, no, I have some experience in this area. That's not entirely true. And we were able to, you know, sort of change the outcome of what was going on based on that. Um, and I think it's more so more than just like having that direct experience with things, but like, you know, taking, like Manoj was saying, taking something from a completely separate field or area of knowledge and like saying, Hey, you know what? I think that would actually work here if we tried doing it, you know, this different way. Sometimes there can be a bit of resistance in that, in the, in the DOD to wanting to do things in a different way, or sometimes maybe there's just policy that prevents that or has a roadblock to allowing you to do things a certain way. But I think even just that initial thought, even if you're not able to take it hundred percent in that direction, if you're able to get five or 10% change in a new direction, it, it makes a, a big difference uh, in how you're able to get things accomplished. You know, that just reminded me of something, you know, and for any of new LTs that are that may be listening that may be nervous that they're coming in to become a flight commander for the first time and leave people for the first time. That's how I was. Uh, I had never supervised anyone when I first came into my first medical brain as flight commander job. And I had to supervise two people. And I was like one very experienced civilian who had been doing it for 13 plus years and one staff sergeant had been doing about three, four years. So I was like, they already know more than me. How am I supposed to like lead them when they know more than me? Uh, but I quickly thought of my hockey team before I joined the Air Force and I was back in Georgia. Yeah, that sounds weird. Hockey in Georgia. It does exist. Uh, but I was captain of that team. And granted, yeah, the other guys on my team were much older than me. And they've been playing hockey for a lot longer than I have. People from Buffalo and Canada and whatnot. But they looked to me and they said, you're going to be our captain. And I was like, okay. And I love the sport. So I was like, I can do this. I knew the rotations. I knew when to sub people out. I knew who to play. I knew who to not play at certain times. And I was like, and I'm thinking back on it during that time of my first flight command. I was like, I didn't know anything about hockey, but I knew how to lead people, I guess, at least at a hockey captain level uh, approach. And I was like, how can I use that here? Like, I don't, I didn't know anything about readiness, but as long as I look at the situation, know what people's strengths and weaknesses are and put them where they need to be and give them the tools that they need, it's the same thing. And yeah, leading a flight and playing hockey are two very different things, but try to think of the same approach as to leading people. And it helped me when I use that example, uh, when I got to my first job and I just, I've built on it ever since. You, you didn't necessarily hit on this point, but it got me thinking about it was, uh, there's a bit of, of humility that you have to have in that moment to understand that, Hey, you, you recognize it. Like these people know a lot more about this particular 
career field or flight or or mission than I do and being willing to embrace them as experts, but then recognizing I also have something to bring to this conversation. And and together we can we can probably do things that we didn't individually think we would be able to do um, by blending that expertise with an outsider's perspective. One uh, one just last point that on this that I wanted to hit uh, again that got me thinking about how the Air Force, the way that it's designed, whether it's on purpose or uh, just a happy accident, is because we PCS around and PCA between different flights. So often we're also, you know, being forced into kind of cross-pollinating a lot of those ideas and experiences where where you, Manoj, you know, you know, you 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 are you have an opportunity, even if you work medical readiness at one base and then you go and you work medical readiness at another base, to kind of keep what works, shed what doesn't try again, because you know you're doing the same kind of functions, right? You know, you're going to have MCRP teams, you're managing training, you're doing, you know, readiness reporting, so on and so forth. You're doing the same functions, but how can I do it better this time around? And you can try new things, new tactics, techniques. And um, I think that gets to, or that, and then bringing in, you know, oh, you get to this new place and they do a function poorly that you've seen done well elsewhere. And you can bring in, import in that that practice from another location. Say like, hey, well, what if we do it this way? It, could, it worked for that that base. It could work for us too. Those are just some good examples of getting, uh, you know, like keeping yourself out of like a one trick pony. Or I have one way that I do this job, and I'm not willing to learn new things or keep my intellectual curiosity aflame, um, and it can hinder you at some point. So, um, put each of you guys on the spot here, Chris, I'll start with you. Should this book be on every MSE's reading list at some point in time in their career? Yes, no, or meh. Oh, oh, Greg. Something in between. Greg, you're really opening a can of worms here. You're really just putting me on this. Okay, so... I think I need to make a, I think I have to preface this with a, like th- there needs to be some dialogue here before you just throw this 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 weighty question on my shoulders. I don't think I've ever seen Chris more flustered. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I, you know, I take reading lists and books and reading in general very seriously. So he's been, he's been waffling ever since the intro. So go on, continue your continue your waffle. I have, I have, I have. Thank you. I mean, how big is this reading list? What like, are the What are the parameters, Greg? What are yeah? Like I I need. Do, do I think every MSC should read this book? Absolutely. I think every MSC should read every book that we've done a podcast on, and then some. Right. I mean, I, I read, you know, t- 24 to 30 books a year. I think every MSC should be probably can read wait, wait, know, wait, twice wait, as many me, as, as that. Let me build on the question. Do you think they should read it at the beginning of their MSC career or later? 
So, okay, that's 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 a very good question. Mm, um, interesting. I would say both. I would say read it in the very early stages of your career, but then also go back to it. Maybe once you get to the FGO levels. Because I think I think CGOs are going to get something different from this than say our senior most SGAs and O6s and probably even a lot of O5s. So I think it's very I think it's maybe a little time bound. But yeah, I, I think overall to answer the question, yes, I think this this should definitely be read by most MSCs, but not because it serves any purpose for the generalist or specialist debate. Um, but I think it would resonate with a lot of people because a lot of the people that we have talked to do have diverse backgrounds. They do have a lot of range of experience. I mean, hell, Greg, you're, you were a BMET, right? And we didn't even, we didn't even get to throw the question back to you about how did your experience as a BMET, right? How does that paint your uh, experience as an MSC now, right? Uh, we've got people from from maintenance, right, that are prior E from maintenance. We got people that are coming out of the guard, people who are security forces. We've got, I mean, just such a range of experience. And honestly, I think that's probably by design. Uh, so, so sorry, that's very long winded way to to say yes. <laughs> Manoj, is this on your is this on your MSC must read list? Yes. And I agree with Chris's answer. Uh, I didn't think of it that way. I was just going to say later. But uh, yeah, at the beginning, and uh, and then maybe in your FGO years, just this, uh, just to kind of look back on. And, and it's, in retrospect, it is probably it's nice to look back at what you've done. Maybe you'll chive some memories of things you've tried before and go, oh, I'm, you know, again, like I said before, oh, I'm dealing with this problem. And I dealt with something similar in the past. So um, even though I never read it, it had me rethinking of a lot of stuff I used to do in my younger days that, you know, different sports, different jobs, different experiences. And it's actually kind of good timing for me because, you know, for a second there, I was kind of half joking, but kind of being serious. Well, maybe I should start Jacob on viola or an instrument here, like when he's like three or four. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have to do that. I don't think so. I don't, I don't need to force it on him and make him like be a prodigy at like eight years old. So I'm like, you know, he can do a lot of different stuff and whatever he ends up enjoying will help him out in life later. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I'll end this segment with my answer and it's not the unpopular opinion, but it may be unpopular based on these two gentlemen. And I'm going to say, no, my reasoning is this. It is a good book in the bookstore window to get you to walk in and you know if the goal is to just get an MSE to pick up a book and read then sure yeah it's a fine book it'll get it'll get you going and it, and it's interesting and keeps you engaged throughout the book it's entertaining but the lessons that it has for us i think are better taught in other books and so this one doesn't uh this one doesn't make it onto the MSC must read list uh for me. What would you put in its place? See, and that's well, not we haven't even defined how many books are on our list. Is it 10? Is it a hundred? Is it a thousand? No, I mean okay, so so my answer to that though, right, is it's actually probably like three different books. 
Right. And again, just, just because this one really, you know, in a true generalist nature, right. Just does a little bit, digs into like a little, scratches a little bit of an itch. It's very validating as a book because I think the majority of people have generalist experiences and and so this book is saying like oh well you don't have to have started as a two-year-old in this profession to be successful and we're like i didn't start as a two-year-old so i can still be successful it's it's very validating in that way and uh and and that's good i'm not saying it's a bad book uh but i would say uh daniel kahneman's thinking fast and slow covers a lot of the same topics of just kind of how the brain works, but that one's much more um, interesting and revelatory. And I would say that uh, one of the books that we read, uh, Think Again, it was our first book that we read, although we didn't record an episode about it, Think Again by David Grant. David Grant? Adam Grant. Adam Grant. Yeah. Uh, Think of Again by Adam Grant was a better book than this one, um, just about the diversity of thought. And um, I probably have a third book, but I don't know what it is right right off the top of my head. I've written down three books. This is better as three books, but I don't. I didn't write down three books because it was short-sighted of me. I wasn't sure I was going to bring it up or not, but then I did anyway. Anyway, that's my thought. And I was kind of setting you guys up because I figured you would both say yes. And then I could say no at the very end. It's perfect. It's perfect. It's a great question. I think we should uh, keep that as like a recurring question. But again, how many books are on our shelf? Let's just, let's figure that out. <laughs> it's endless. It's an endless are we, Wait, are shelf. we supposed to put shelves, our own bookshelves on the seat 41A page at some point? Yeah. So I think it's, I think we have one shelf. Right. And, but we don't have dimensions in the room in which this shelf sits. So it can, in theory, extend <laughs> to infinity. However, it's going to, it takes deliberate action, right? It's one standard shelf at the moment, and then it can be expanded. It goes through so infinity. A, it still didn't make his list. It's almost like a TARDIS. <laughs> Tardis. <laughs> so back by popular demand, because I know people have missed out on this a little bit, is what I'm told. But I'm going to throw out my unpopular opinion and we will discuss. So for me, my unpopular opinion, I believe, is I think and this is twofold. In the Air Force, if you have an office type job. You should wear office type clothes. And by set by when I say that, I mean we should all be wearing our blues. I would say every day, but I would go back to the fact that maybe we should bring back blues Mondays. Not even once a month, once a week. Now I'll tell you why. So I do enjoy wearing my blues. I bought them for a reason. I bought them and I want to wear them because why else would I just keep them in my closet? And also, I don't think we'd have as many issues with people having clothes that don't fit or ribbon racks that aren't updated or shirts that are not ironed appropriately. appropriately. 
like just the last couple of weeks ago, we had an open ranks inspection. I'm like, why do I have to get up so early and do an open ranks inspection? My blues are fine. For me, I've been playing a lot of national anthems around the base lately, so mine are good to go. But I don't think we'd have to get up early and have these squadron open ranks if everyone were to wear their blues, in my opinion, every day. So there won't be the whole, oh, my God, my pants don't fit. I have to go buy new ones. Oh, but they're not tailored now. And now you're just behind the curve on everything and rushing and doing that. So if we had to wear blues every day because we have an office type job and we're not really like working in the trenches, you know, fixing concrete on the runway or anything where OCPs would probably be a little bit more fitting. We're not in a battle, you know, uh, a battle front with our OCPs. We're just the chair force. So I think we should be wearing our blues more often. Manoj, I, uh, I think I'm, I'm with you. Think that the, uh, that wearing the blues uniform more often than just in ceremonies or when you're in trouble is, is the right answer. I know, I know Keesler just started back up, uh, you know, a blues day. And I think Chris is probably going to talk about it a little bit, but I think that that is applicable to most people. Uh, you know, at one point in time, I was doing blues Monday through Thursday and it was BDU Friday. Um, so I would be, I would be okay with going back to that, honestly, myself. But then as an officer, I know like uh, some of my enlisted that, that work in my flight currently, you know, some days they're, at their desk the whole day other days they're you know uh slugging boxes and computers like all over all over the the place and so you know there there would need to be some sort of forethought into your schedule uh built in because i wouldn't want them doing that in blues um however at a minimum more frequent blues wear by all airmen is i think a very supportable opinion and, and before chris says anything i'll say also like when it comes to this book that we just did range and specialization we wear ocps all the time i think i could probably argue that most of us are pretty specialized in our ocps and where our patches go and where our name tapes go and everything but when it comes to our blues we're like oh i don't know how far the badge is supposed to be above the the, uh, the ribbons well it's because we don't do it enough so we need to range out our our, our uniform wearing because even the navy i know has like six or seven right and they just wear them i don't even know what day is what for them but it, i would bet they all know where everything goes for each of those uniforms because they wear it so often well actually <laughs> to take a page from greg's book <laughs> Having been in the Navy, I can tell you that's not always the case. Not 100%. But yes, they have a lot of uniforms. So glad to be on the in the Air Force now where I don't have to manage as many uniforms. Uh, but sorry, I hate to tell you, but your unpopular opinion is actually uh, sounds like it's popular amongst the group here because I agree. I think uh, regular wear of our, of our different uniforms is... Uh, I, I see it as appropriate. Um, <clears throat> so it's, I, I find it to be a little concerning that typically when you see somebody in their blues now, the immediate thought is, uh-oh, what they do wrong? And I had 
you know, like a month or two ago, run into somebody in an elevator and the person was in their blues and they were with somebody in their, in their OCPs. And I just being completely oblivious to the situation was like, Oh yeah, look at you, man. You looking sharp, look good. And like, <laughs> I, I walk out of the elevator thinking I'm like, you know, mostly, giving this guy a compliment <laughs> and, this, and I walk away and it like hits me like, Oh man, you idiot. Like this guy was with a supervisor. He's probably on his way upstairs. Cause I, I'm on the fourth floor and the command section is on the fifth floor. So there's really only one other place he probably could have been going. And I just felt horrible. And it, and it just like, it just dawned on me. Like we should not be putting ourselves in that situation where like seeing the uniform and like wanting to like celebrate somebody and thinking like, Hey man, you look, you look good. Like it actually turned it into this, like probably, well, one, it was an embarrassing situation for me because now I feel like an idiot but then he probably was also like, oh, my God, this this captain is making fun of me for getting in trouble. Like, what an asshole. Like, and, it, you know, that's just not the case at all. So I'm, I'm glad that Keesler is coming back to this. So we, we have it now once a month where uh, at the end of the end of the month, the last duty duty day of the month, we're, we're going to be wearing our blue. So I, I, I like that. I, I think that hopefully that maybe starts to kind of shift that that mentality and and maybe that's just me who thinks that way but i don't know at the same time if the guy's going to go get and tr- get in trouble with the commander or go get some paperwork or whatever you know it's probably to his benefit that he at least looks sharp in his blues and not like uh you know a dirt bag stretching his buttons ribbons all crooked whatever you know at least the dude looks sharp you know he, whatever their faults may be, wearing that uniform is not one of them. Fair point. Fair point. All right. So um, last thing that I want to hit on for this episode is just because it's a little bit topical uh, results from the MSE majors and lieutenant colonel boards came out a couple months ago now. Um, and, you know, you're listening right now to three uh, uh the newest promotees or soon to be promotees uh in the career field. So uh just a congrats real quick to, to Chris and Minoj for uh and to you, selected. Greg, too. And to you. Thank you. Yeah, don't Thank leave you. yourself out. Well, I but I'm not gonna mention it. I was waiting for you guys to mention it. So <laughs> was it because of the podcast? We don't know. We can, we'll never really be able to tell. However, um, <laughs> it didn't hurt. Didn't somebody make a post? That there was like a, a trend in the first couple of episodes. So we're, we're just trying to continue the trend. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, following the results of the Lieutenant Colonel boards, I did have an opportunity to sit down and talk with one of the people who was actually on that promotion board. And uh, he was, uh, he did give me a little bit of board feedback, uh, generally speaking, not necessarily about, about my record, but I thought it was really good advice and, and some things that I wasn't thinking about before the board. And so I just really want to share that with anyone who might be listening to this episode and might be coming up to a board in the next year or two. Uh, 
just some things to think about. First one was about board certification. So for the Lieutenant Colonel board, a lot of people who met that board actually got their board certification uh, several years ago, and they've had to recertify in the interim. So one thing that this board member uh, saw was that in individuals' records, there were some people who had in their officer selection brief board certified and said yes, but the certificate that was in their record had actually expired and there wasn't a recertification certificate that was part of the record. So one of the things that he mentioned was that for the those records that that applied to, it was kind of hard to tell whether this person was still current and really board certified or not. And I think a general rule to go by when it comes to preparing yourself for a promotion board is probably to make sure that you don't have any questions or doubts in your record that make people on the promotion board pause and and think about your record in a way of like, do they meet the criteria or do they not, right? So uh, that was one piece of advice was, you know, recertification or renew renewals of your certification. Make sure that those are a part of your record in Prada um, before your board meets is the first thing. Um, second one that was brought up to me was about letters to the board. So, you know, officers, uh, you know, all over the Air Force, you know, at times have certain, you know, either derogatory information or maybe just a less than stellar annual report or whatever the case may be. And you, as a, as someone meeting the board, you want to address any inconsistencies or any derogatory information that's in, in your record, you know, Hey, when I was a Lieutenant, this happened. Um, but since that point, you know, I learned from that and, and, and it's not an issue any longer, or it hasn't happened in the last five years and it's not going to happen in the future. Uh, whatever the case may be, uh, some things, uh, that again, this board member relayed to me is that it's really important in a letter to the board that you own whatever issue that was, you know, it was in the past and certainly in the letter provide the details or the extenuating circumstances that surrounded that negative or, or uh, that negative information, but that shouldn't cross a line into complaining or giving excuses or, you know, it's, it's somebody else's fault, not my fault. Uh, and, and there's a way to do that. And I think each letter is going to be specific to that particular situation. But again, the feeling that <clears throat> some people are getting across in those letters to the board was that uh, they weren't owning their mistakes or owning their issues and it was you know, casting blame on somebody else what's up just curious where would that like negative information be in your record are you saying like it was in their opr somebody like a like a referral opr or something else yeah i think potentially uh, i mean i didn't get any specifics but you know what i've what i've heard before is you know like um you know, maybe some inconsistencies when it comes to, you know, you get a strat 
one year, second year, the mm. same commander, but then now you're off at the strat. You don't have a strat for I the same see. commander. You're in the same billet, gotcha. stuff like that. Or, or you were, you know, number one in 2018, but in 2019, you're number four, you know, it's kind of like what happened. It's like, Oh, I failed a PT test. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Or whatever the case may be. Right. You know, sure, just coming sure, up sure. with a, Okay, that makes sense. I thought there was like a a list out there, like, hey, a secret list. I've done bad stuff. (laughs) Like, I need to look at it and own up to it. No, but there can be like paperwork in your record too that is, um, you know, or or it could be a referral OPR again, um, or an Article Fifteen. When I sat on an MLR several years ago. I mean, there was, there were, uh, it was nurse corps majors that I was looking at, uh, preparing for the, for the board. And there were some people in there that it said like in their OPR member received an article 15 for, you know, so-and-so. And that was as a Lieutenant and now they're a major and they're competing for Lieutenant Colonel and, you know, but their, their command still put them in for, you know, for promotion because, Hey, they made a mistake. They were 10 years younger and they've learned from it, you know. And I think it's okay and it's it's right to address that to the board and let them know, you know, hey, but the but again, the key takeaway there is own own your issues, own your record, and show how you are you've grown from that or you've moved past whatever that issue is. Um was another uh just big takeaway. Anyway, I wanted to share those those things uh, with you guys, and then also with with the broader audience, just in case uh, for if you're listening and you're you're getting ready for an upcoming board, just some things to think about. Yeah, thanks for sharing those. I don't think we always get uh, that level of feedback, so I I appreciate you sharing that with with us and the and the broader audience. It's really great stuff. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for joining us as we discussed range. We brought back the unpopular opinion and Greg shared his feedback from the recent promotion board. (laughs) From all of us here to all of you there, thank you and good night. C41A is an independent company and produced by C41A Media. Digital media support and creative director, Manoj Rima. Marketing and IT, Christopher Foote and Director and Outreach, Greg Taylor.